church for, wasn't it? That was really good. Didn't know you could play the guitar. That was wonderful. I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn to uh, two passages in 1 Peter chapter 5 and then Ephesians chapter 6 and mark those places. We will, uh, I'll show you some other references on the screen, but I would like for you to mark those and you may want to underline some things in those passages, 1 Peter 5 and Ephesians 6 in that order. Uh, next Sunday's old-fashioned day. <clears throat> now, if you're new to our church, you say, what does that mean? It means nothing. Uh, <laughs> you know, Daniel has been here for almost five years, and he said, uh, Brother Rick, what does that day mean? I said, Nothing. <laughs> I said, we just do it to have fun. I said, no, there are some, there are some underlying things. But if you want to uh, dress old-fashioned, that would be good. Uh, that would be fun. One year, Andy, Andy Sisko came dressed as Buddy Holly. Now, the problem with that is I, I didn't know who Buddy Holly was. <laughs> it just looked like Clark Kent to me. But I didn't recognize him. We were over here where the uh, fellowship wing is now and I thought he was a visitor and uh, he had his hair greased up and black glasses and and uh, a, kind of a seersucker suit on and just smiling at me but uh, he was playing along and, and but he, he had me good and uh, of course Pam can act demon possessed sometimes and she's there with him and uh, boy they, they real being good but uh, anyhow, I'll never forget that. So if you do that this time, I'll know you're faking because I know who he is now. But you can do that. Our guest will be uh, Tony Ellenberg. Tony is a great friend of ours and a wonderful singer and a songwriter. And he'll be singing, <coughs> excuse me, in the morning service. And then we're going to have a great meal uh, after that. And then we'll have an afternoon service in place of the evening service, which we do every time we have this. And he'll have the whole service to present a concert of his music. And so uh, we're asking you to, to bring a dessert if you can. And uh, we'll have some hot dogs and hamburgers and some sides and so forth for us on that day. So we'll have a good time next Sunday. I want you to bring somebody. That's a good time to uh, invite people. Uh, to special days. That's one of the reasons we have these special days is to give you an opportunity to invite people, okay? All right. We'll look in First Peter 5 in just a moment. A while back, probably two years ago, one of the best books that I read, I, I love to read, most of you know that, but probably one of the best books of the year that I read was a book about the University of Washington rowing team that competed in the 1936 Olympics uh, when Hitler's machine was just begin to um, grow and thrive there, if you want to call it thrive, and, uh, in Berlin, Germany. That's where the Olympics were. And so uh, they won the gold medal. And it's about their journey as a team and how they function. And it's about centers around one particular character it is an excellent book called Boys in the Boat. They ought to make a movie about it. It would be an excellent movie. Uh, in fact, at the end of the book, uh, the, the author talks about how that, that men that have read that book that would, would cry uh, because, because of the book. But it's not just a book for men. It's a book about history. Uh, you know, my son John read it. I, I gave one to him. And he read it last month, and he called me, and he said, Daddy, I read that book. And he said, I, I had no idea about how deceptive Hitler was and the things that he did to, to portray Germany as, as being something that it wasn't to the world when the Olympics came over there. That's, that's in that book. And so the history's there, and then the teamwork is there, and how that when you get in the, in, in the boat, uh, how you have to function together as a team. And then just some human interest stories that are just utterly fascinating. Uh, it, I remember I'd go to my mom's house, and, and mom likes to read. And that book was there 
on, on the little dresser on the way out the door. Boys in the Boat, New York Times bestseller. And I picked it up one day. I said, is, is this a good book? I can't remember who gave it to her. Somebody gave it to her. She said, yeah, you need, you need to read that. And I said, well, I got a lot going on reading, but I said, I will. So uh, she said, well, you can have the book. Somebody gave it to me, and you can just have it. So I took it home and kept it about six months and then knew it would be good and read it. So I would commend it to you. One of the things I learned in that book was about efficiency. Efficiency. In fact, management teams have taken that book and studied it. You can Google that and go through and read about how they've taken principles from that book and distilled them to teach about how important management is and working together as a team. But it's a rare thing for a rowing team, and I don't know anything about rowing. What I learned about it was in that book. But how rare it is is for a team to be in complete efficiency. I believe there were eight eight rowers that were there in the boat. I believe that's correct. And for those guys to be in perfect rhythm is when that boat would not just glide through the water, but it would have a maximum efficiency. And they had a term for that. And I'll tell you the term in a minute. But when they, when they got in that particular area, uh, they described it as a euphoria. Because the ride was smooth and the speed of the boat and everybody was in just perfect sync that it was amazing. And this is what they called it. I don't know why, but they called it swing, S-W-I-N-G, swing. They said when we were in swing, and it was a rare thing, you just didn't get in the boat and get in swing. Because usually somebody was, you know, um, a half a second off or a millisecond off or something. And, and everybody has to be in perfect unity as you go through that. But when we were in swing, th- there was a perfect harmony. There was a perfect efficiency that led to a perfect effectiveness. Now, I've taught you about spiritual gifts here. And I said that when, one of the ways you know that you're functioning within your spiritual gift is when you have maximum fruit with minimum effort. And that doesn't mean no effort. It just means that you are doing what you're wired to do. And when you do that, you enjoy uh, fruit that other people don't enjoy, and you do it with minimum effort. I've talked to other people said, man, I don't know, in, in ministry years, I don't know how you do that. Well, I'm not gifted to do that. They enjoy doing that. They're good at that. And they have maximum fruit from minimum effort. And I've been talking to you in recent weeks, probably about two months now, about the topic of purpose. And I've been bringing a number of messages on the importance of purpose And this is one of the reasons that you need to know God's purpose for your life. You need to know God's purpose so that you can experience God's fruitfulness. But listen carefully. There is a distinction between functioning in swing or in sports. In baseball and basketball, they call it being in the zone. A basketball player can be out there and he can be shooting and it, it just works that night. He doesn't miss anything. A golfer, same thing. A baseball player gets up and hit. He, he is in the zone. And, and you can, there's no science to it. Now, there probably is, but he can't figure it out. He just knows, man, I'm in the zone. A pitcher doesn't miss the strike zone. And they call that being in the zone. But here, here's the issue. Here, here's the distinction between... Operating within your spiritual gift and being in the boat, which would, they would call swing, or in the sports world where they would call in the zone. And listen carefully. When you get involved with God's purpose for your life, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be in swing or in the zone. It means that sometimes it's going to be arduous. It's going to be very, very difficult. Sometimes it's going to be uphill. And it's not going to be pain-free. And I think sometimes that we, we sell things to people and say, well, if you, if you do the will of God, 
It's, it's just going to be a great life. And there is great joy in the will of God. Don't misunderstand. There's great joy. But there is a lot of opposition within the will of God. There, there's difficulty within the will of God. And I don't know about you, but my flesh doesn't like that. I want the path of least resistance. And if you give me options that I can take A, B, or C, and this one involves comfort, and this one involves some, some thorns, well, I'm taking this path. But maybe this involves God's purpose for my life. And here's the thing. Most of the time, in fact, almost all of the time, except for Paul ahead of time, God told Paul that his life was going to involve some specific suffering. Now, we know ours is going to involve some suffering, but he knew kind of like what his suffering was going to be. But when you get involved with God's purpose, you know, well, yeah, it'll be hard, but you don't know how hard. Uh, years ago, I heard Jerry Falwell say something like this. I remember where I was at when I heard this. It was 1977, and, and it was like an epiphany. I thought, boy, that, that is really a, a great thought. He said, I know some people say, well, I, I wish I could know what the future held, you know, where I was going to go to college, who I was going to marry, what, where I was supposed to do this. And, and I wish that uh, I, I knew what the future involved. He said, no, you don't. He said, because the future involves some suffering. The future involves some loss. And he said, if, if you knew the future, it would overwhelm you. Now, he wasn't being a pessimist. He wasn't being cynical. He was telling the truth. And though I was young, I remember as I heard that, I thought, well, there's a lot of truth to that. Because I think sometimes we sit back and, and we just say, again, we go back to the doors. Well, this is, this is comfortable and this is kind of medium. It involves, but this is going to involve some sacrifice. But this, this is God's purpose. And by the way, success always involves design. Find the design. You'll find success the question you ask in anything is, what is God's design in it? And then you fulfill that design and you'll be successful. Not what the world says, but what does God say? What is His purpose in this relationship? What is His purpose in this function? And you fulfill that and you'll be successful. But it's, it's not quite that vanilla. Because there's opposition. For example, in the family. You can find God's design within the family, but there, there are special trials in marriage. And, uh, you know, ABC, well, over here, it's all comfort. And you watch a 20-minute uh, sitcom, and they have a conflict, and they work it out in 20 minutes. Well, that, that's not life. Sometimes it takes 20 years, and sometimes it's not worked out until heaven because of the patterns of sin in us. And in each institution, in each area of your life, there, there are situations like that. You ask God, what is your design in this? And you fulfill that design in spite of the opposition. Now, there are three, there are three categories of people concerning God's purpose. I'm going to mention this quickly. First of all, there are people that have never considered God's purpose. And I spoke to you about that. God wants you to know His purpose. And I hope that if you're here this morning, the first step to that is knowing Christ as your Savior, to know God personally. You'll never know God's purpose to have a relationship with the Lord. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You don't know what it is to walk with Him. You can never know His purpose. And that's the first step. You've got to be saved. And then after you're saved, there, there are certain things that God tells us to do. And when we do those things, you wake up and you're within His purpose. It's not a mystery. But some people have never considered, God has a purpose for my life. And it is, it, it, it does involve some opposition, but it's the most exciting place to be in the world. The most fulfilling place to be in the world. Second category of person are people that have forgotten their purpose. They discovered what God wanted them to be, but along the way they got distracted they begin to drift or whatever, and now they just forgot. They said, oh, yeah, I remember I remember when I committed myself to the Lord. I remember that night when our family began to go to church faithfully. I remember when I was faithful in reading the Bible. I even used to memorize the Bible. I remember when we were involved 
in ministry at church and in gate. I remember that. What happened? What happened? I, I forgot. Now, now I'm just kind of on the margins of things. And I've given you some, some reasons that people forget. They get distracted. First of all, because of the weariness of life. I preached a whole message on that. Just tired. You get tired. I think I'll stay home tonight. I'm just tired of fighting. I'm just tired of this. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. We get weary. Secondly, because of a lack of progress from our perspective, I spend a lot of time on this. We, we feel like I'm not making progress. And you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith not in, in, in yourself but in God. You know, Abraham didn't seem like he was making progress for those 20 years after God made a promise to him. But that was part of God's plan. Brother Tim spoke to that a while ago about evangelism. Just sometimes you say, I'm not making progress. Well, you, you leave. It's your job to sow the seeds. It's God's job to bring them to fruition. Just a lack of progress. Prepare yourself well. You young people, prepare yourself well. I, I, I can't encourage you to do that enough. Prepare yourself well. Aubrey's in college, and I talked to her. A couple of weeks ago, she was having a class. She's struggling a little bit. And I said, well, I said, well, here, you, you need to buckle down in there. And it wasn't like just a dead lecture of, you know, just, just hearten up. I, I said, honey, I said, I, I remember going to school. And there would be people around me that were faster, quicker, and smarter. And they would sleep. I said, I had to work for everything. <clears throat> but I said, I paid attention. And I said, I went to the library, not just to, to do the work that was required, but I would go to the library and, and I, would, I would read through periodicals and, and uh, newspapers. And sometimes I wouldn't even check out books. I would just go, go through books and, and sit there for a couple hours a week. And I said, honey, I didn't realize what I was doing then what God was putting in me not, that didn't have anything to do with stamina, but had to do with my heart and had to do with my mind. Because she, she said, Dad, I, I don't have time for extracurriculars. I don't have time to, to go do, do fun things that other people are doing. I said, I said it's okay. So you'll find some time. But I said, even if you don't. And I told her my story. I said, I didn't either. I said, because I filled those things with some... Some other other things. And, and I'm not better than anybody. But because I did that, I, I'm fully convinced that some opportunities came my way that didn't come to other people. Because while they were playing, I was quietly working and preparing and, and thinking and pondering. And, and, and the God, the living God of the universe... Saw, saw someone's heart in Philip's dormitory in room 302 who loved God and, and, and whose heart was set on eternity. And there was nothing wrong with the other activities. But I was preparing myself. And sometimes we say, well, I'm just, I'm just not making progress. Well, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, what you're doing is going to count. Uh, don't, don't eliminate the time of preparation. Then last week, one of the things we talked about was the busyness of life. And life just gets busy. We have so many options today. And because of those options, we get to the place where I just forgot what I was here for. You know, somebody said, uh, when you get in the swamp, you're surrounded by alligators. You forget that the original purpose I got in here was to drain the swamp. (laughs) There's just so much going on. You don't want to be, you don't want to be like I am, where you're 60 years old and realize that, that I, I haven't fulfilled God's purpose for my life. I made a lot of money. You don't, you don't want your kids going to college. I mean, our house has been quiet. You don't want your kids going out of your house and looking at your hearts and I, I didn't do good with my kids. One of my kids came over the other day and said, Dad. When did you and mom first begin to accumulate money? Uh, thank you for laughing. It's true, isn't it? Because of the other parents. 
I said, honey, we have never done that. I said, you know what we did? When, when, when you were young, what money we had that we could have maybe upgraded in a car or done some other things, we spent on trips. Not for me and mom. Uh, we, we, Paul and I, we, we didn't do anything big until our 20th anniversary. And that was when we went on a cruise, first cruise we went on. The other times, we, we gladly deferred that to the other kids. But we spent trips with the kids. And she's here. Uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But you know what happens? You get so busy. But I'm telling you, uh, the, the time is coming when you're going to say, the urgencies of life that bore in upon me, they stole the things that were important. And the quote I gave you last week, that the urgent is not always the important. In fact, a better quote to say it is this, the urgent is rarely the important. And the important is rarely the urgent, rarely. Because what's important just kind of sits off to the side and waits for your attention when the urgencies cry out to you. Busyness just just fills your life up. And today I want to close out this, this category of people that have, have forgotten their purpose with a, a fourth area of opposition or, or sapping your strength or distracting you. And it's this, this. This is why people forget their purpose or they get distracted. It's because of spiritual warfare. Because of spiritual warfare. I hope that you believe in, in the devil. I hope that you believe in the devil that is portrayed in the Bible. You know, one of the best, one of the best days in your life is when that you, you understand that, that life is not only difficult, but that you have an enemy. And you face him as a Christian every single day, and his name is Lucifer, Satan, the God of this world. He is the devil. Now, the Bible gives us in 1 Peter chapter 5 the attitude that we're to have. Notice there in 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. Be serious about this. The devil is no joke. You know, he, he's not some guy in a, in a red costume with a tail that's inept. He is no joke. You need to be alert. He's not God, but he's a lot smarter than you. And then be vigilant. The root word of that is vigil. It means to keep a watch. It means to be alert, to be on guard, to pay attention. He's sneaky. Because, watch this, your adversary, you have an adversary, the devil. And I want you to know he hates you. He has no mercy. He hates your family. He hates God's purpose in your life. And notice what he does. As a roaring lion. Now pick up that metaphor because I'm going to come back to it later. As a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. I believe as I pray through this. That there, there's someone here this morning who Satan is about to devour. He's about to destroy your marriage. He's about to steal your purity. He's about to rob you of of God's purpose in your life. He wants to rip everything that is precious from you. He seeks whom he may devour. Now this this is really easy for me to become very purposeful and intense. Because I'm a pastor. And I, I sit across the desk, I sit in homes, I sit in restaurants across from table with tears on the table from people whom Satan has destroyed things that are precious to them. And if you're here this morning, listen to me, listen carefully. Some of you are distracted, but you do not know where this path is taking you and the end thereof is destruction. 
Jesus told Peter in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, he used his name, his pre-conversion name before, he, before it was Peter, it was Simon. And he said his name twice, almost his name in the flesh. He rarely called him this unless he wanted to get his attention. It was when he was about to do something stupid or he had done something stupid. He said, Simon, Simon. He wanted to get his attention. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, the difference in wheat is, is chaff. And uh, there, there's a method, a process in the old days by which they would do that to be able to, to separate it. And it was a very violent procedure. And here's what Jesus was saying. The devil doesn't think you're the real deal. He thinks you're chaff, but I know you're wheat. But he is going to sift you, and it's going to be a very painful experience. And every man, woman, boy, teenager this morning, listen. Satan wants to sift you, and some of you, he is sifting you this morning. You need to be sober. You need to be vigilant, because he will... Destroy you. He has no mercy. He wants to devour you. Did you know that the problems that you have with people, that the vast, vast majority of the time, it's, it's not problems with people. It's because Satan has or, orchestrated that. I read years ago, I don't, I don't know if the statistic is true, but it was alarming. And I've talked to missionary agencies and leaders about this and and uh, one agency told me, so we've got to do a better job of this for missionaries because the statistic is true. That 85% of missionaries that come home from the field come home, are you listening? Because of personal conflicts with other, other missionaries. Now, whether that precise number is accurate anymore, a majority of missionaries come home because they have conflicts with other missionaries that are on the field. And that's just in the mission field. I wonder, I wonder how many Christians leave churches because of conflicts with other Christians within that local church. Has nothing to do with the doctrine. Has nothing to do with the mission of the church. And it's really not a people problem. It's a satanic problem where Satan is manipulating people behind the scenes. Notice in your Bible in Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 12 with me. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that means people. Our problem is not with people. And then he gives the, the organization of, of the world of, of Satan. Our, our wrestling, our problem is against principalities, powers, and rulers, this is a, like the military has different ranks. These are the ranks of the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places, that's our problem. Because uh, the Bible talks in Ephesians chapter 4 about giving place to the devil. He's talking to Christians. It doesn't mean you're demon-possessed. But you begin to think fleshly thoughts... Of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He begins to manipulate you to, to think selfishly, bitterly, to where you even hate people. And you're, you just become a puppet of the devil. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. Wherefore, because of that, because we're manipulated so easy, take unto you the whole armor of God. Because he attacks us. Now, this is a metaphor. We're in a warfare. We're in a battle. We need the whole armor of God so that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Notice that. That you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now if you're a Christian this morning, you have a target on you. But if you're a growing Christian and you're a fruitful Christian, you have a bigger target. 
if you're a visible Christian and you're a pastor or you're a pastor's kid, you have a real big target on you. Because Satan knows that if he can cause controversy with other people, not just within the family of God, but with outside, then he will do that. But there are some of you this morning that are on the path of righteousness, and you're doing right, and you're having a lot of trouble. And you're saying, why am I having so much trouble? Because you're doing right. And the enemy's upset about it. Basketball season started, I think, recently, NBA, and I don't watch a lot of it till maybe the playoffs some. But last year I was watching, and maybe two years ago, I was watching uh, Golden State, I think that's who it was, with Steph Curry and, and those guys. And he's just an amazing shooter, as you know. What would it be like if, uh, if during a game he called timeout and he went over and he told his coach, he said, Coach, you got to help me. And he said, why? And he said, they're guarding me over there. In fact, they've got two guys over there. They're guarding me really close. I don't like this. This is not fair. The coach would laugh. He said, what do you mean? This is, this is basketball. They're supposed to guard, but they're not guard. They're they're guarding me more than they are him. Steph, they're guarding you because you're our best player. You're you're the best shooter in the league. You're you're probably the best shooter in the history of the NBA. Nobody can shoot threes like you do. You're you're just phenomenal. And they're gonna they're gonna get up in your face and they're gonna guard you tighter than anybody else on our team and anybody else in the league. You got to get used to it. The more effective you are the more opposition you're going to have. Now, there's hope. I'm giving you the heavy end of it right now, but there's hope. But I want you to understand that just because you're having some opposition, because you're, you're tempted to divert, doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. In the book of Acts, uh, there were these clowns that came up, and they kind of wanted uh, to do what Paul and them were doing, with casting out of demons and so forth. And uh, so these guys came up and they wanted to, uh, the showmanship as it were, not that Paul did that, but that's what these guys saw. And so these demons came out and they attacked these guys that wanted to to be showmen. And they made a statement, and here's the statement in Acts chapter 19 and verse 15. Look at it. And the evil spirit answered and said, now watch this, Jesus I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? Who are ye? Now, now we know Jesus and we know Paul, but, but who are you? Now, Paul was doing the work of the ministry. This guy was just, I don't even know if he was converted. My question is, does the devil know your name? Does he know what you're doing with your family? Does he know what you're doing with your in your marriage to assault the kingdom of hell. I mean, if he does, you're going to have some trouble. And part of that, he wants to divert you from the purpose of God. And spiritual warfare can get you out of the will of God. Paul wrote young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. He said, Thou therefore, Timothy, endure hardness. Look at this. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardness. I love to laugh. You can ask, ask my wife. I'm a very silly man sometimes. I, I love joy. I enjoy all that. But I'm telling you, there's a serious side. You've got to endure hardness. Endure hardness. In the same book... Some of the last words that he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul, in a biographical sense, he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Notice there, he acknowledges, I've been in a fight. I'm at the end of my life, but I've been in a fight, and it wasn't with people. I had a problem with people, but my problem wasn't with people. People hated me. They didn't hate me because of me. They hated me because of what I was doing for God. It was Satan that inspired them. And then notice what he said. I finished my course. 
My course had to do with God's purpose for his life. Did you know that if, if, you, don't, if you don't fight the fight, you're not going to finish the course? There's a fight. And again, it's not, our fight is not with people. Our fight is with the enemy. Even politically speaking, what's going on in America today with abortion and homosexual rights, they have very strong positions on those. And they all have faces on their back. Our, our fight is not with people. You understand? It is the enemy that is using these people. The, the enemy is, is Satan. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. I have not diverted from God called me to do. Someone wisely said I, that the Christian life is not living on a playground, but on a battlefield. But on a battlefield. I didn't have the privilege to serve in the military, but some of the movies that I've seen and some of you guys perhaps could help me with this. But especially on the, on the war fronts where a lot of guys are hurt, it's just the value of a medic. I mean, they, they cry out uh, at the top of their voice for a medic. And they protect those medics because they can save their life. Because, listen, a Christian life is not lived on a playground. It's lived in a battlefield. And listen carefully. And on a battlefield, there's casualties. It means in a local church, there's casualties. Now, I don't want to be a casualty, but it could be. If it can be done, I can do it. And it's so easy sometimes to, to, to make a list and to point out things. And say, well, well, did you hear about? Did you know? One day it's going to be your marriage that's a casualty. One day it's going to be your best friend. One day it's going to be your parents. One day it's going to be your child. One day it's going to be your brother. And you won't be so critical then. There will be a heart of mercy in you. This, this, thing, this thing is real. And the enemy comes into a local church. And he comes in within the kingdom of God. And he begins to exert his will. Because we are so weak spiritually and we're not even involved sometimes we we're not even involved with God's purpose we're we're so busy we're so intent with with secondary things but I speak this morning to those of you that are on the road to doing God's will and and you're distracted you're tired the enemy wants your soul but if he can't have your soul he wants your testimony But if you won't give him your testimony, he wants to distract you from God's purpose. Did you hear that? If you're saved, you know, I have my soul. Well, he wants your testimony. You're not going to get my testimony. Well, then he'll just settle for keeping you distracted. And he'll do that by discouraging you. By getting you to focus on other things. You know, when you get involved in sin... Your conscience becomes numb. Satan gets you involved in sin to, to get you out of the race, to get you out of the purpose. And, and you do things that are just stupid. You look back and say, why did I do that? When David committed adultery with Bathsheba in Second Samuel chapter 11, and uh, chapter 12 is the story there too, it's like he lost his mind. He not only committed adultery, he committed murder. The only man in the Bible that was said who was a man after God's own heart. It's like he lost his mind. Sin, listen, sin will blind you and make you irrational. And you will do things later when you, in hindsight, you look and say, why did I go there? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? I have a friend uh, who's a pastor of a, of a great church, a, a very large church. He had been appointed to be the successor of, of one of the most well-known preachers. I'll not mention the preacher's name, but if I did, everybody here would know him. And to be the, the successor for this, this preacher. 
And uh, but sad to say, the preacher's philosophy, who has been well known, was to borrow a lot of money and, and build buildings, and kind of like the movie, if you build it, they will come. I mean, people need a big building. You build the building, they'll come, and then they'll pay for it. If you build it, they will come. And you're, the reason you're not doing this, you don't have faith. If you have faith and you build this thing, build this building, if you build it, they will come. So a lot of his preacher boys went out, and they did that. A lot of them went bankrupt. Now, some of them didn't buy into that. They loved him. But they said, well, I don't, I don't believe that. Well, my friend uh, went out and built a great work in another state. The mortgage payment for his church was over $10,000 a week. A week. So every... Almost twelve grand. So every month, at the top of their checks they had to write was almost fifty thousand dollars just to pay for the building they were in. And here was one of the greatest preachers. In fact, I I contacted him years ago to come here and and preach for us because I wanted you to hear him because he was just a good guy, one of my dear dear friends. And I remember running into him two or three times after that. And we were going through some financial trouble here of our own. But, man, mine wasn't anything like his. But I'd come up to him and I'd say, privately, I'd say, hey, I want you to know I pray for you. I said, I, I understand a little bit of what you're going through. Not quite this, but I understand some of it. And I watched that man age before my eyes over the years. Soon he he told a, another pastor friend of mine, they were speaking together and uh, privately, and he said, you know, he said, you're a great pastor. And my other friend said, no, you're, you're a good pastor too. He said, no, no. He said, you're, you're the pastor, not me. It was a strange comment. He said, you're the pastor, not me. And both of them were pastoring. But the guy that said, you're the pastor and not me, was the man that had all this debt. Many crowds were coming. He had a lot of invitations. He was very, very well known in his state and in some ways in the nation. He was conquered by a sexual relationship outside of his marriage. It became known, and because of his association with this other preacher, the press began to mock him. He resigned his church, of course. He went underground. He hid because to protect his family. They moved out west to another state to try to salvage his marriage. They stayed together for a number of years. He and his wife are divorced now. Now listen, when I, when I tell you that story, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I love this man. I've written him two or three times. And for whatever reason, I have, I have a burden for, for my friends that this has happened to. You know what happened? He got distracted. Because he was accomplishing great things for God. And, and perhaps he went about a good thing in a, in, in, in a less than good way, not a wrong way, but probably uh, he could have paid for it another way. But, but he was taking some advice from somebody he respected. And he got distracted. The enemy will distract you and you will end up at a place or when you look back a year from now, you say, I was so stupid. I had the world at my hands. I was so stupid and I forfeited it all. And here's what the devil will do. I'm almost finished. Is he will lie to you. He will, he will put lie. He will not just lie to you about sin. He always does that. Before you sin... He minimizes it. After you sin, he maximizes it. He's a liar. But he just lies about your purpose. He plants lies into your mind. For example, he'll come to you and he'll say, you know, you're a failure. You're a failure. This is not going to work out. Now, I I can't understand this. I could show you biblically how he could put thoughts in your mind. I don't understand this, but he can there's no hope. This is not going to work out. You're the only one. 
Remember how Elijah said, Lord, I'm the only one. Nobody cares. It's not going to get any better. And the enemy specializes in despair, discouragement, and distraction. Every time. Now listen, you've got got to take control of your mind. And here's how you do it. It's on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice in verse 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, we're, I live in a, my body, but my battle is not in my body. You see, a long time before you, you sin in your body, you sin in your mind. But the weapons of our warfare, this spiritual warfare, are not carnal. They're not fleshly. You can't will your way out of this thing. But they're mighty weapons through God. God gives you a mighty weapon. In this warfare. Now how do you do it? You have to pull down strongholds. Now what is a stronghold? A stronghold is where the enemy fortifies himself. That, that is where the enemy is strong. It is in military parlance. They still use that occasion. It's a stronghold. You've got to attack the stronghold. Now in this contact text. A stronghold is our habit patterns of unbiblical ideas. That's what your strongholds are. And watch this. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Or to, you, you've got to destroy these lies that the enemy has put into your mind that you believed. Here's how you do it. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against God. To bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I've got to replace the devil's lies with God's truth. Because he will lie to me. He will lie to you. He will distract you to get you out of God's purpose for your life. Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, you're in a warfare. And I want you to use God's truth as your primary weapon. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. said, Timothy, this charge I commit unto thee. According, this is the word of God, according to the prophecies which went before on thee. That's the scriptures. Timothy, this is my charge. According to the word of God, the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them, that is the word of God, that you might war a good warfare. That you will war a good warfare. Now, well, you have, and forgive me for being personal about this, but just to illustrate this. When you have a debilitating illness that just will not leave you, and it's kind of an ebb and flow, it's better sometimes. Sometimes I have a weekly treatment, and the most common question I get is they say, well, when do you get your treatment? And I get it on Wednesdays. I say, well, you feel better after that. And I know what people want to hear, and they say, well, yeah, man, I feel really good. So. But I don't. Now, if I didn't have it, I feel bad. I mean, it could take my life because it, my immune system would not work properly because I don't have the antibodies. But when I get that, it doesn't give me a boost. It just helps me to function. So I'm still, if I was like at a 5 out of 10, with 10 being really good, it's still going to be about a 5. Now, listen carefully. This is not, this is not here. This is not what I want. Because you can't wish yourself out of weakness. You understand that? You just can't say, I think I'm just going to feel good today. Now, you, you, you can do that with your attitude. You choose your attitude. And, and, and I'm responsible for my attitude. But sometimes the enemy will come and whisper to me that, that, this, that this has no redeeming purpose in it. That this is going to get worse. That this this kind of renders you useless. And when I'm by myself, I'm assaulted by these thoughts and other thoughts. And, and what do you do? I have to replace those things with Scripture, with God's truth. 
James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or all types of trials. Diverse is the word, different types of trials. Knowing this is the trying of your faith worketh patience, that God is working in my life. I overcome the lies of the devil with the truth of God's word. Almost every Sunday morning, not every Sunday morning, but three out of four Sunday mornings, I have almost the same thought while I'm trying to prepare and really review. It's already done, but I'll, I'll pray through my message. I'll go through it again and make sure that it's in my mind and in my heart and so forth. And there, there's a very distracting thought. Now, I don't know if it's a habitual thing or it's the enemy. I, I tend to think it's the enemy. It happened this morning. And it takes me typically three to five minutes. And there's been other times where it's been almost debilitating. Where I've had to literally open the Bible and go and read Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And just, just to, to veer me off of what I'm trying to give to the church. Now I want to ask you a question. Is that God? Is that the Holy Spirit? No. Is that my flesh? Well, well yeah, but my flesh... Just doesn't gravitate to that because it feels good. I think it's the enemy. Now, in closing, you have your Bible open to Ephesians 6. Look at that. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith, that is with the shield of faith, you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You've seen some of those medieval films where they'll They'll, the guys will shoot the shower of arrows out to people. Sometimes they'll have some flame on it. That's what he's talking about here. They would daub the tip of the arrows with tar, and then they would light them with flame. Then they would shoot them, and when it hit its target, the tar would spread, so the fire would sp- spread, whether it was on wood or, or if it hit your body. And so... Uh, once these, these, these guys would, would see those arrows coming at them, the Bible talks about a shield. And, uh, and they would hide behind that shield. It's not quite as big as that door. You've perhaps seen this in movies, but, but almost like a door, about two-thirds that size. And they would take leather, the hide of an animal, and on the outside of their shield, they would put that there, and then before they go into battle, they would soak it in water so it would be wet. So that when the arrows came in and it would splatter, that it wouldn't catch on fire. And when they would see those arrows come in, they, they would hide down behind that, and the arrow would hit, and it was a legitimate attack, but it wouldn't bother them. And here's the question. What are the fiery darts, and what is the shield of faith? The fiery darts are the lies of Satan for your heart. The shield of faith is the truth of God against that lie. Here it comes. Here, here, here comes that lie. You've got to have God's truth. If you do not have this up, you just become a victim. And some of you, you, you just got arrows all over you. You're burning up. Look, look at the next verse in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon you have in the, the armor is the sword. And the sword is the Word of God, but it's the Spirit's sword. The Holy Spirit takes God's word, and he fights off those lies. Remember when Jesus was tempted? It is written, it is written, it is written. Now that assumes that you know the word. And it's not, okay, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now that's better than nothing, but it's not a rhema, R-H-E-M-A. A rhema is a specific word for a specific situation. You need to find out what those situations are. Memorize texts. Put them on three by five cards and carry them. That will help you. Then look at chapter 6 of Ephesians. Look at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. That's the issue. The power of His might. That's where the hope is. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. He has a specific plan, a specific strategy to destroy your life and destroy your family and destroy this specific church. The word wiles, do you know what the word is in the Greek language? I'm going to spell it for you. You tell me what English word we get from it. The wiles of the devil. Here's what the word is in Greek. M-E-T-H-O-D-I-A. Methodia. We get the word method from it. They are the subtle, sneaky methods, the strategies of Satan. He has a plan for you. In closing this morning, have you, have you drifted from God's purpose for your life? If success is fulfilling God's purpose, then a purpose is no good if it doesn't influence your life. And maybe the reason that you're not fulfilling it is you've had opposition from the enemy. And you're in this warfare. You're moaning and groaning about it. God's given you some weapons. And turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to look at this. This will help you. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. As a roaring lion. Did you know that when lions are attacking their prey, that they will put the male, let's say they're, they're over here and they're, they're drinking water, whatever the other animals are. They're over here at, at a water hole. So they put the male over here. Because of his roar, which can be heard from miles away. I've read even five miles. And that he will become very visible at a specific time. And he will roar the the king of the jungle. And roar that roar and flare his mane. And alarm these animals. And they will run from that lion. What they don't know are that there are younger lions. This is the strategy of the lion. There are lionesses, females, and younger lions that are faster and quicker. They don't have the roar of the lion, but they have agility and jaw strength. And they run into an ambush. What you're supposed to do is you run into the roar. You run into the roar. Next time the lion roars, next time the enemy comes up and he intimidates you, but you don't go with your own strength. The Bible says, look at it. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom, that is the devil, resist. Resist the devil. The Bible says to to flee fornication. Those are fleshly sins. You don't resist fornication. But you don't flee the devil. You resist the devil. But you resist him in the faith. That is in, in the ground. In the faith that you're in. Your position. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplishing your brethren that are in the world. The God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that you have suffered a while, He will make you perfect. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. He will settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go back to verse 6, same chapter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's a protecting, not in it, under it. He's protecting you that He may exalt you in due time. And here's what you do, casting all your care upon Him for he careth for you. And in the context of that, he says, You cast your care upon him because the lion is roaring after you. James chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil. And at first, we submit yourself to God and resist the devil, and he will.
because of the blood of Jesus, because of the Spirit of God in you, because of the promises of God, because of your position in Christ, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil after you've submitted to God, and he will flee. He has no authority over your home. He has no authority over your life. He has no authority over your children. He has no authority over this church. He has no authority. Greater is he that is in you than he is in this world. He has no authority over the life of a Christian. It's what the cross was about. It's what the resurrection was about. His authority was broken. And yet the, the warfare that we in, it wears us down so that we cannot finish. We cannot pursue God's purpose in our life. Am I talking to somebody this morning that, that you're really distracted and and you're just saying, you know, preacher, I, I can't even think straight anymore. I, I don't even know what to believe anymore. I'm just too good to put one step in front of me. Well, that's okay as long as you're believing the truth. But if you're not believing the truth, at some point, being on autopilot is not a good thing. Am I talking to somebody this morning that that is believing the lies of Satan about your marriage? It's not going to last. About the way you raise your kids, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. He's lying to you. About the way you build a church, it's not going to work. He's a liar. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning, please.